Today on Physically Spiritual, I explore truth and how we're dependent on receiving reality from others in order to thrive. Welcome to Physically Spiritual. I've been amazed by how much growing physically healthier has changed my spiritual life. I'm captivated by discovering the truth about my body and how it reveals God. Physically Spiritual is my attempt to harmonize and share what I've discovered. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt. This is episode two of four of a series I've entitled The Macronutrients of the Soul. The basic idea of this is that uh, in nutrition, we have macronutrients that we need for our body, carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. So I'm using that concept as an analogy to talk about what we need on a wider scale as a, as a whole human person. Oftentimes when we talk about uh, spirituality, when we talk about health, a lot of it can be focused on what not to do. Like, don't eat that, don't commit that sin, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but this series is really about what do we want to do? What are the things we want to take into ourselves in order to flourish, in order to live according to God's design? So I came up with this context, concept of the macronutrients of the soul. I also hope this helps to uh, just help understand the big picture, you know, coming at things from, from a wide angle in order to make sense of the particulars of our experience. And so these macronutrients I'm proposing are the traditional idea of the transcendentals, the true, the good, the beautiful, and the one, in that, that these transcendentals that reflect the qualities of God and are reflected in his creation and in his revelation, that by focusing on receiving what the Lord has given us in the deposits that he made, both in the deposit of our faith and also in the deposit of his creation, that by receiving those things that we flourish as people, the same way that when we receive the right nutrients in our body, our bodies flourish. So today we're looking at the transcendental of truth. Uh, some scriptures have an interesting quality where the, the longer we've gotten since it's been written, it seems like it becomes more and more true. It's like the more time passes, sometimes the more Jesus's words seem to apply. And there's an interesting uh, dialogue at the end of the Gospel of John between Pontius Pilate and Jesus as he's being judged before his death. And Pilate simply asks this question, what is truth? What is truth? And, and I think this is one of these phrases that as time has gone on, it's become more and more applicable. You know, we live in a world of propaganda, of alternate facts, of social media bots and AI deep fakes to the point where Really, in some sense, we're all asking that question, what is the truth? What is the truth? Is that video that I just saw online the actual person? Is that somebody who said that? Or is that a bot that's collected thousands of, of images or videos of that person and then generated a new picture in a new voice to put on that person? Is this actually the truth? Right? Is this something that there's a scientific article backing it? And did the scientists that write the article reveal all of their, all of their uh, conflicts of interest? And did they interpret the, the data that they discovered accurately? Or is the article simply trying to sell a product or make a preconceived point that the, the scientists wanted to make before the article was ever written? Uh, is this post that I'm seeing on social media true? Or was it just fabricated by someone and then spread across the internet? by people reposting it and resharing it simply because it agreed with their preconceived bias, right? And all these different experiences that we have and will continue to have as we try to define the truth in our day-to-day -day life, we're left with uh, a terrifying realization 
that we all have a very limited capacity to know what the truth is. Uh, the most common and simple de definition of what truth is is simply correspondence with actuality or like a fidelity to reality, that our perception and our understanding of what we perceive corresponds with, with what reality actually is. We could also look at it from the perspective of coherence, that it makes sense in the big picture. It's not just the particular experience and understanding that, but it's also making sense of the particular in light of the whole, that there's a, a, a systematic coherence with our knowledge to the bigger picture, more of a wisdom perspective. We might also talk about truth from a social perspective. Truth is something that we share, something that we come to together, something that we tell others about, something that we receive from our caregivers, that we receive from our good friends, and that we receive from people that we perceive as authorities. There's other more contemporary uh, theories of truth, that truth is what's pragmatic. We know it's true because it works, or that truth is something that's fabricated. My truth is simply what I've come to understand, or what's true is what people generally agree on, right? That the basis of truth is just uh, the social contract or the agreement that people have with each other. In all of this, I think the, the thread that we have to look at is that truth is deeply connected with reality. If we believe in truth, then we believe that there is something that's real outside of our mind and that we come in contact with it and then that we're capable of actually knowing what that truth is. Recognizing our own frailty, our own limited capacity to understand, and our own uh, definite capability of being mistaken, but that, that there is a real and that we can know it. We as humans, because we are meant to receive truth from others, from our primary caregivers, from God who reveals himself to us, from those that we perceive as authorities, from our leaders, we're susceptible to something called the guru effect, right? We, people uh, can mistaken the profound for what they fail to grasp. Meaning if somebody around me, I perceive as smarter than me, as more intelligent, as knowing more than me, if I fail to grasp what they say, I can assume it's because I'm not smart enough to understand it, right? When in fact, what the person is saying might just not make any sense at all. And that's why I fail to grasp it. But, but oftentimes, scientists or, or people that are in a certain fields of knowledge can unwittingly create new words, new lingo, new syntax that's really unnecessary, that creates a barrier of impenetrability to the average person to be able to understand what they're saying. It's like you can't read the article, you can't understand the scientist unless you've spent the time to sort of read all the articles, read all the books for yourself, learn what the heck the words they're saying actually mean. See, it's easier for us as humans to recognize when somebody is smarter than us or less smart than us, right? If somebody knows more than us or knows less than us, it, it, it's sort of that relative judgment of this person is more intelligent or this person is less intelligent. I should listen to that person or I shouldn't listen to that person. What we're less capable of grasping is when there are multiple people that we perceive as more intelligent than us or as grasping more information on a certain subject than we are, we struggle as humans to understand which of those people we perceive as more authoritative or more trustworthy are actually smarter than the other ones, right? So let's say I understand 50% of a topic and there's one expert who understands 65%, another one who understands 75%, another one who understands 
I'll simply recognize that all three of those individuals are smarter than me. But my capacity to actually parse out which one of those three is the actual authority, which one actually knows the 95%, I'm going to be at a limited capacity to realize that. And oftentimes we fall back on uh, faulty ways of identifying who that person is. It could be our preconceived bias based on our own limited understanding, right? So we like to listen to the expert who we agree with. It could be characteristics that don't really have anything to do with it. Maybe how well they speak, how well they communicate, how attractive they are, how much we perceive their authority based on their academic credentials or their resume or their curriculum vitae, right? We might judge them just based on those characteristics, but no one of those qualities actually tells us which one of those individuals is the authority, is the person that understands it over 90% versus the person who's just mistaken that they're the actual authority on it. Uh, so per perceiving this, um, I would propose three different, uh, three different things in order to sort of protect ourselves from this or inoculate ourselves against it. One is we need to always hold on to our opinions loosely. We need to be open to new information. We need to continue to perceive things, not just through our preconceived notions, but be open to receiving new information about them. I think I've said in previous episodes that, that always be weary of, of health experts that reveal their bias in their name, right? If somebody calls themselves Keto Carl or, or Vegan Vanessa, right? In their very name, they're revealing their bias. And, and then a limited openness to perceiving and receiving new data that, that would disprove their identity that they've created for themselves. Um, so we need to remain open to new information. The second is um, we need to, as we're approaching receiving from people, we need to make sure we're receiving from multiple different sources. I know for me, oftentimes I learn a lot more and actually feel like I grow a lot smarter by listening to people that I disagree with by trying to, to wrestle with their concepts, by presenting their arguments as they present them themselves versus maybe the straw men that people state when they're trying to formulate those people's arguments. And then finally, the, the, the third thing that I do to, to try to inoculate myself against this kind of guru effect is I try to, uh, to share my, the information I understand with the people that I know and receive information from the people that I know meaning the people I actually have real relationship with, the people that I, I love. I know that love me, that care for me. And by doing this, I get grounding, right? I get feedback. You know, what you're doing is really crazy. <laughs> Maybe you should uh, double check your sources. Maybe you should reconsider this, right? These people actually care for me and actually love me. And so they're going to challenge my beliefs, challenge my predisposed notions. Sometimes we spend too much time alone in our own heads with the people we're listening to in our earbuds. And not enough time in conversation with people who love us, who will give us objective feedback about our lives. So we need to try to inoculate ourselves against this guru effect, this inability for us to perceive who the actual authority is. But we also need to accept that we as humans are designed to receive truth from others. This is basic to our human nature. This is probably one of the, the biggest heads up our ancestors had on other species around the planet that we as high functioning social mammals don't just have like genetics that we inherit from our ancestors or, or basic behaviors that were taught by our parents, but we also have the capacity to, to learn higher concepts 
to package those in language and then to share those with one another so that when I'm born into the world and I receive an education, I, I'm not just educated to the point of like a one-year-old. A lot of other species of animals on our planet, that's really the formation that they get. They have their genetic coding and then they have six months or a year with their parents to learn about reality, to learn how to hunt, to learn how to stay safe, et cetera, et cetera. And then they're sent off into the world to survive, to try to thrive. But we as humans have this massive, long, really two-decade or lifelong period of receiving more and more information from those that have gone before us. We have books that were written thousands of years ago, a deep wisdom that comes to us from our religious traditions. And all of this goes into us to help us to understand reality. And so this is a, a, a fundamental, very important characteristic of human nature that we need to hold on to. And I think this was one of the gravest mistakes of modern philosophy. As modern philosophy started with Rene Descartes, he started with doubt. He started with an absolute doubt of all authority, of all knowledge that came before him, and started with the, the simple claim, the cogito ergo sum, the think therefore I am. But by starting with doubt, he lost access to the wisdom of the ancients and had to reconstruct a system based on just his own perception, his own fallible knowledge. And so then uh, he unwittingly, because of a lack of trust in what he was being given, I think made himself more susceptible to his own bias, to his own project, as opposed to receiving a reality from others and then contributing to clarifying that reality and then passing it on to the next generation. I think when we look at the Gospel of John, when we look at the Gospel of John, there's a, a, a deep uh, connection throughout the text with these words, truth and reality, truth and reality, and connected with the word word or logos. In the very beginning of the Gospel of John, Jesus is presented by the Gospel writer as the logos. This uh, Greek word translates as word, but it also connects deeply into Greek philosophy, all the way back to the thinker Heraclitus, a pre-Socratic thinker, who had this, this deep uh, conception that all reality was connected by this logos, this knowledge of the oneness of things, and then continued to be interpreted by, uh, by Aristotle when he talked about, uh, about rhetoric and ethics and the, the logos, and then also then by, uh, by the, the, uh, uh, the Neoplatonic thinkers, and they had this idea of the seeds of the logos, that there was this deep organizing principle of reality that could be found in all things of perception, these sort of seeds of the truth that were then picked up by early Christian thinkers like St. Justin Martyr, who, who ran with this idea, with that Neoplatonic philosophy, meeting the revelation, especially in the Gospel of John, to talk about how, how God created all reality through, in a sense, his own, his own form, his own goodness, his own unity, his own beauty, his own truth. And then in all created things, there are these seeds of the Logos, or these traces of the creator that we can discover by honestly and humbly approaching them. Uh, when one of Jesus's apostles, St. Thomas, uh, you know, sometimes called the doubting Thomas, maybe the connection's not, not accidental here. He, he comes up to his, his teacher and asks him this question in John chapter 14. It says, Thomas said to him, master, we do not know where you are going. 
How can we know the way? Master, we don't, do not know where we, you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, then you will also know my Father. For, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. But this basic question that St. Thomas asks, I think echoes into our time, right? How can we know the way? How do we know who to listen to? How do we know where to go? How do we know which talking head on YouTube is the one to watch? How do we know which podcast is the one to listen to? How do we know which scientists are the ones we should trust? How do we know which research paper is the one that's trying to communicate accurately to us? How do we know which political party actually has our good in mind? How do we know that our church is trustworthy? How do we know? How do we know the way? Right, this echoes into our time. And Jesus answers this question in an interesting way. He doesn't come at John, or he doesn't come at Thomas with a syllogism. He doesn't try to, to prove something logically to him. He doesn't come at him with a theological teaching. He doesn't come at him with, um, with a philosophical argument. He simply says, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the truth. He comes to John and confronts his desire for information with a relationship. Jesus says, you don't need instructions. You just need me. Follow me. Remember this deep connection that we're designed to receive truth from others, to receive truth from our primary caregivers, who in a real way sort of give reality to us in our childhood, and then from our other teachers, our teachers in school, our professors in college. Right? This is basic to human nature that we're designed to receive truth from others, to believe, to trust, and not to doubt. And, and Jesus comes to Thomas with this basic idea. I am the truth, right? Trust me. I love you. Follow me, and you'll get there. Earlier in the gospel, uh, Jesus is talking to the Jewish people. And these are, it says, the Jews who believed in him. And he says, if you remain in my word, the word logos there, you will truly be my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you remain in my word, you will be my disciples. The word disciple means student. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. There's this a beautiful connection that's made here. Logos, word, hierarchy, reason, reality, truth. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Right? What's at stake here isn't just understanding concepts, but if we don't know what to do, how the heck can we actually be better? How can we ever get healthier? How can we ever do the good? How can we ever improve the world? How can we ever help other people? Right? We're so frail and contingent and dependent on others to receive the truth. And yet in our contemporary society, truth is seen as a commodity. Right? How can you trust somebody that's giving you diet advice when they're selling supplements? How do you know they're not just trying to sell their supplements by convincing you that to believe what they're telling you? And, well, by the way, I happen to provide this product that gives you all these wonderful health benefits that I'm trying to sell you, right? How can you trust that? How can you trust a, a scientist that's dependent on certain institutions for funding and those institutions have a vested interest? whether it be the government or it be a manufacturer of a product, 
right? And then they're expected to somehow be objective in that, in that environment. How can we trust our politicians when every couple of years they just need to get reelected and they need to raise a bunch of money in order to get reelected? And it seems like they'll tell us anything in order to get our vote, right? How can we trust any of this? But without knowing the truth, how can we ever do the good? How can we ever be free? Right? This is, is one of the, the deepest, I think, values of faith in contemporary society. Uh, there's a really important concept, I believe, called Chesterton's Fence. I've talked about it a couple times before, I think. Um, and uh, Brett, and, and, uh, Brett Weinstein and, and, and Heather Hoying, who are a couple who are, um, who are evolutionary biologists, uh, wrote a, a book recently and brought this concept to the fore. It's called Chesterton's Fence. And simply presented the idea that, that G.K. Chesterton presented that if you don't know why a fence is there, don't tear it down. Right? The basic idea of Rene Descartes' model was, if I don't know why the fence is there, I'm going to tear it down. I'm going to start from scratch. And I'll build new fences based on what I figure out for myself. But Chesterton's inviting us to the opposite. He's saying, if you don't know why the fence is there, don't tear it down. You don't know why it's there. You don't know what it's keeping in. You don't know what it's keeping you away from. You don't know what it's protecting you from. And in so many ways, we live in a society that's tearing down all the fences. We're running in all different directions. And just hopefully it works out. <laughs> but frankly, I want to propose to you that time and time again, it's not. Right? Are people becoming healthier or less healthy? Are, is people's physical health better or worse than it was 100 years ago? Is their mental health better or worse than it was 100 years ago? I think in so many ways as we see things like obesity and the suicide rate just continuing to skyrocket, we have to be confronted with the fact that maybe all the things we did away with in our society were there for a reason. <laughs> So going back to Pilate's words, John chapter 18 says, so Pilate said to him, then you are a king. Jesus answered, you say I am a king for this. I was born and for this, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Quid est veritas. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my word, right? So we're not just in relationship with a person who is the truth, but we're also subservient to a person who is the truth. Meaning the truth isn't something that I possess. The truth is something that possesses me. I'll say that again. The truth isn't something I come to possess. The truth is something that I come to be possessed by. This is why you might know people who become deeply convinced of something and then it propels their life in a certain direction. It's because when we encounter something that we believe to be true, we're not just designed to agree with it. We're designed in a sense to worship it. We're designed to give our life to it. We're designed that that becomes the thing that propels us forward. And maybe you can think of people who's whose diet philosophy or political ideology or something like that has become the organizing principle of their whole life. And they pretty much worship it. There's a collection of, of the priests of the order 
the, the people who are on the podcast and YouTube shows that they listen to and receive their life advice from and trust, even if they're saying things that aren't verifiable or very little evidence, right? And then there's certain prophecies they believe. Well, if only I do this, you know, if, if I get through the adaptation period, if I do this for six months or a year or five years, then these effects will finally come into place, right? There's prophecies involved in it. And then, or, or if only my political party would win and then we could have this perfect world. <laughs> and then there's always like a doomsday prophecy, like, like oh, the enemy is going to win and then all this bad stuff is going to happen or, or the whole world's being destroyed by people who are eating meat or something like that, <laughs> right? Like all of these things take on the characteristics of religion in people's lives because we're not just meant to organize truth within our mind, we're meant to be organized by the truth that we receive. This is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church in paragraph 144. It says, to obey, from the Latin word ob audire, or to hear or to listen to, to obey in faith is to submit freely to the word that has been heard because its truth is guaranteed by God who is truth itself. Abraham is the model of such obedience offered us by sacred scripture, and the Virgin Mary is its most perfect embodiment. So let's dig deeply into this paragraph from the Catechism. To obey in faith is to submit freely to the word that has been heard. Well, what's the word that's been heard? In our experience of God, in our gift of faith, in the scripture, the word that's heard is the Logos, is Jesus Christ. It's a real experience of God himself. And it's a truth that's guaranteed by God. It's not guaranteed by a placebo-controlled, randomized, controlled trial, or even a meta-analysis of, of a collection of placebo-controlled meta-controlled uh, trials, placebo-controlled trials, I'm sorry, right? It, it isn't a truth that's guaranteed by the backing of the, the, uh, the FDIC, or a truth that's guaranteed by the might of the United States military. It's not a truth that's guaranteed by, by your, your mother or father telling you that it is the case. Right? It's a truth that's guaranteed by truth itself, by truth incarnate, by a truth that's given to us from, from an ultimate source. Right? Abraham's the model of this. I love this phrase because I think Abraham's life is like the model for what we need to do in contemporary society in so many ways, right? right? Abraham is in a certain context when his story begins in the book of Genesis. He's in Ur of the Chaldees. He's in an ancient uh, Mesopotamian city that had a certain worldview, that had a certain political structure, that had a certain economy, had a certain food system. And he's called out of that context to no longer believe in the God King, to no longer be dependent for his security on the might of a military, but on the might that God gave him. To be dependent on his food, not from a vast system of slavery that provided him with commodities, but to get reconnected to the land, to produce his food from his own flocks, from his own possession. Right? He's, he's challenged into this new context. And in this new context, Abraham comes in touch with the truth. Not just that he's removed from layers of falsehood, from layers of propaganda that are teaching him a certain thing about reality, where he's taken back into nature in order to come into context with God's original deposit 
of reality, of truth. But then he's also given a further deposit. He's given an experience of God, a revelation, a theophany that then takes it even further than we could devise on his own power uh, from creation. Right? This is the model for us too. We need to return to the basic structures of reality that God's given to us. This means we need to, to come in touch with, with uh, you might call it the natural world or the world that's not synthetically created and devised and designed by human ingenuity. Although tools are helpful and homes are good and, you know, even tools like the car or the cell phone could be helpful in certain contexts. We have to recognize the fact that we are drastically alienated from the context that, that we were created in and that we're designed to flourish in, right? So getting back in touch with nature, with things that organize themselves that aren't contingent on us to hold them in being, but are contingent on God to hold them in being, right? right? This is a reality that we can really lean on and rely on. The, the second thing, uh, and this is beautiful, in the nuptial blessing in a wedding, it talks about marriage as being one of the, the blessings of creation not lost in the fall. That marriage is one of the blessings of creation not lost in the fall. Right, so, so in this basic experience of human love, of marriage, we have another experience of reality as God gave it to us. Because what do we have in marriage is we have a mutual gift of love, of trust. And then from that mutual gift of love and trust, there's a superabundance, right? There's new life that comes into the world. That, that basic experience of trust, love, dependency, and fecundity that we experience in nature, we also experience in marriage. And by living in this reality, it teaches us the truth. It teaches us the fundamental truth of reality that we can trust, that we are dependent, that by receiving from others and giving of ourselves, Right? We're not left with less. It actually creates more. We don't need a God king. We don't need a dictator. We don't need a despot. We don't need an all-powerful super government and mega army in order to be safe. We just need to let ourselves be loved and love others. So as, as we're, uh, we're thinking about this, I want to now um, zoom in on uh, a, a closer context to talk about experiences of irreality and then where to go with these relationships of trust to learn the truth. So we have experience of irreality that we need to recognize. Things like heresy, error, and dishonesty. Right? We can be drastically misled by others. And by believing untruths, right, this sets our life completely off course. But our mind is also kind of like a dual processor. There's two, two different ways of knowing. There's, uh, there's kind of the, the, the fact, the language way of knowing, but there's also a more relational way of knowing, right? In Spanish, they have two different words. They have saber and they have conocer. So it's that, that kind of fact kind of knowing, language kind of knowing versus that relational kind of knowing. After the fall, it says Adam knew his wife Eve, and then they had children. This isn't just a sensitive way to talk about lovemaking between a married couple. It's also revealing this truth that in this encounter, this physical encounter, this emotional encounter, this intimate encounter, there's a way of knowing that's happening. There's an experiencing of truth that's happening. And so we're also confronted with the fact that in relationships, we're presented with a certain kind of irreality. One of the ways we can talk about this is the contemporary concept of trauma. 
by being traumatized by others, by those primary caregivers failing to love us, by, uh, by experiencing difficult things that we don't recover from, we become habituated to untruth. Uh, so thinking of this in the context, let's just give a, a broad, a random example. Let's say as a child, a dog runs up and bites you, right? Bears blood. Now, when you're older, if you weren't able to find safety or whatever, that moment was traumatizing to you. When you encounter a dog, even a very friendly dog, a nice dog, a, you know, the dog that would never bite anyone, your heart rate might start to escalate. You might be scared. You might not like dogs anymore, right? You have this experience that isn't based on the perception of what's actually happening, but your nervous system, which is designed to, to form patterns based on prior experiences in order to keep you safe and help you survive, right? right? Your body reacts in a way that, in a sense, doesn't correspond to the state of affairs, doesn't correspond to what's actually there. So these relational wounds that we can have can habituate us to no longer experience reality, to no longer experience things as they are, but to be mistaken based on prior difficult experiences. So how do we overcome this? We need to address both sides. We need to both address the kind of logic, language, information side of the equation, and we also need to address the relational intimacy, love, attachment kind of the equation too. Right? We're designed to be part of a community and love and trust that's seeking the truth together. Say that again. We, we're designed to be a part of a community of love and trust that's seeking the truth together. That's what a family is supposed to be. That's what a village is supposed to be. That's what a, a parish church, a community around a pastor is supposed to be. That's what a diocese is supposed to be. That's what the whole church is supposed to be. A family of love and trust that's seeking the truth together. And so we do need to study. We do need to gather information. Get it from different sources. Listen to people you disagree with. Listen to people you do agree with. Continue to challenge yourself. Don't just receive infotainment where you're not actually being challenged to learn new vocabulary, to go deeper into the ideas, um, but go, go deeper. Listen, even if you don't understand the words, figure out who the fake gurus are and who the, who the, the real experts are. Understand the lingo, theologically, philosophically, uh, biologically, psychologically. Hopefully the show can be a part of, of, of helping you in that journey. But we also need to invest in those relationships, right? Who is your family? Who are the people whom you love and trust, who you're seeking truth with? And by having those, those relationships in reality, not just in an online forum or on a Facebook group or something like that, but people you actually live with, you live near, who you see, who you feel, who you know, who you're loved by, right? But having the, that family and that deep friendship, ideally in your church, right? You become both, uh, both grounded, right? Grounded in a certain reality, but then also able to move forward together with a certain level of trust and confidence. I hope this episode has been interesting. I hope it's been, uh, been thought provoking, maybe a little challenging. Uh, give me some comments in the show notes. Let me know what you, how you feel about the series about the macronutrients of the soul. Go back to the previous episode on unity, on goodness, and on, and then look forward to upcoming episodes on goodness and on beauty.
Thank you so much for listening to or watching Physically Spiritual. I'm so grateful for every moment you've given to this show. Please remember to subscribe, like, follow, and share the show. And if you want to support everything we're doing at Physically Spiritual or at Awaken Catholic, you can become a patron of the show at physicallyspiritual.com. To find anything I'm up to, head over to becominggift.com. God bless everyone.